Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles with you or your cell phones, whatever you may use, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We are going to be looking at verse 25 to 32, and the first few verses of chapter 5 we'll touch on lightly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32. The title of my message is The Christian Life. And this is just really a carryover from last week's message. We didn't really get to get into it. But this idea that Paul lays forth of a new life. The old has passed away. The mind has been renewed. The new self has come. There is no longer a walking in the way of Gentiles or in a former manner of life. And now the Apostle Paul is going to talk about what that looks like, what the expectation is of the Christian. So this message is going to be really four parts. It's going to be examination of the moral code, as we see in the passage here. Obedience, which leads to pleasing of the Holy Spirit rather than grieving of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness, as each Christian is called to forgive, as they've been forgiven. And then love, Christian, godly love. These four things make up what it is to be a Christian. You take away morality and obedience. You take away forgiveness. You take away love. And it's nothing more than a profession. These things make a Christian what a Christian is. They are so important and foundational. Well, let's read the text together, 25 to 32, and then we'll look at the first few verses of chapter 5. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, I pray that you would Help us to navigate this text, to apply this text, to understand that through the Apostle Paul, you are speaking to us even this very day. You are calling us to put off the old, be renewed, put on the new, and showing us what the new looks like, what those expectations are. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your transforming power. And we just pray that you would work in all of our hearts this morning, in all of our minds, and stir us all, every one of us, and that we might press in deeper into you to love, to forgive, to walk in integrity. Strengthen us, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, let's look at the first portion of this text. We're going to examine the moral code. And I love that the scripture reading and prayer Darren read this morning had to do with not being justified by works of the law. That's something important to understand. A matter of fact, I think before I even begin to examine this, if we were to look at what Romans has to say, we should probably have this in our mind as we examine this text so as to not be led into a way in which we don't understand where we're going. So Romans chapter 3, verse 28 to 31. I want this to be in the back of our minds as we navigate the text. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's all there is to it. That's a fact. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now listen to verse 31. Do we then overthrow this law by faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Now why? We uphold it because we understand that the law is holy and righteous and good. doesn't say we live by the law, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No man will be justified by his deeds. But the reason as Christians that we uphold the moral code and adhere to a standard of moral excellency, and we strive for that, is because that is what is pleasing to God. And that is what the Scripture calls us to do. Paul was accused of being an antinomian, that is, somebody who is against the law, because his preaching was so strong in the way of grace. But at the same time, he understood that a Christian life is a transformed life that lives for the things of God, because the things of God are excellent and pure. And that's why, as a Christian, when we live the Christian life, we seek for moral excellency. And we all fall short of the glory of God, and we all stumble in many ways, but it is a striving, a continual striving, and a progression of our sanctification that we look for. So Paul is getting ready to lay this out, what this looks like, as we navigate through these verses. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members one of another. This is so foundational. Why? Because Christians are those who are heralds of the truth itself. If we look back at the 21st verse of Ephesians chapter 4, it says that the truth is in Jesus and if Jesus be in you through faith, the truth is in you. We fall into one of two camps, either regenerate, unregenerate. There's no in-between ground. Those who are not the sons of God are, according to Scripture, the sons of the devil. The Bible says that the sons of the devil are like their father, the devil, who is a deceiver who goes on deceiving. Whereas those who walk in the truth, who are called according to God's purpose, live by the truth and speak the truth. What's interesting, we look back at John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am not just the way and the life, but I am the truth. When Jesus would make a statement, he would make a definitive true statement by saying, truly, truly, I say unto you. He's solidifying the fact that the words that proceed from his mouth and the things that proceed from his life are truth. Now, why is this important? Well, Paul goes on to say that we're members one of another. And to function properly as a Christian, we need to speak the truth and speak the truth in love. Can you imagine 
with me for a moment. You're walking down the road, and here we have the analogy of members, right? We're talking about members of a body. You're walking down the road, and your brain tells you that there's a rock in the road that isn't there, so it sends a signal to your foot, and you trip. This is the idea of when truth is not operating inside of the body, there's chaos, there's error. So it is important, it is vital. The first thing that Paul mentions here is that we are people of the truth. We are people of integrity. And furthermore, outside of the church, if we are going to name the name of the Lord and people know us for being somebody who is somewhat deceptive or cunning in our ways or not entirely truthful, how then when we transition to a conversation about the gospel are we to be credible? We need to be regarded as those who speak the truth at all times, those who walk in integrity, that the cross of Christ and the truth of his word might not be taken as a reproach. Then, verse 26, the next point Paul makes is that we are to be angry and not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what is he talking about? Be angry at what? Be angry at stubbing your toe on your dresser so you're angry with your dresser all day? This has to do with being angry with an individual. This has to do with being angry with somebody and holding on to anger, letting the sun go down on that anger, waking up with that anger. This has to do with allowing roots of bitterness to rise up in the soul, causing contention and division among brothers. Be angry and do not sin. Now, how do we do that? By not holding on to anger, by not harboring anger. Is, is, it, is it wrong to be angry? No. Is it sinful to be angry? No. Jesus wasn't sinning when he made a, a whip of cords and flipped over tables. But it is a sin to be angry with somebody and to hold something against somebody, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to not go and be reconciled with that brother. Really, this all has to do with unity and functionality in the church. The holy Christian life, how we operate together, how we live. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother. Because if you allow anger to abide and you allow anger to work itself up in the inner man, you then begin to grow hatred and animosity towards individuals in which Christ called murder. And this is really a scheme of the devil. This is a working of Satan. Paul recognizes that. He says, do not give an opportunity to the devil. This is a way in which Satan will come in and try to work and operate in individuals by causing strife and division, unholy anger, and oftentimes we see even relationships that get destroyed because of this. Christian brothers at odds with one another give no opportunity to the devil. Then he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, I, I know that I'm preaching through this kind of fast and, and but these points are what they are i mean it is what it is these are just practical points of the christian life speak the truth be angry and don't sin let the thief no longer steal let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth put bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor away don't walk in sexual immorality or covetousness right so here it is verse 28 and i find this i love verse 28 as i was studying this passage Verse 28, I got hung up on for a minute. 
Because really what this is, is this is a transformation. This is a transition from one way of life to another. Paul understands that through the power of the Holy Spirit, there is this capacity, this ability, and even an expectation to be transformed into a righteous way of living. And I think verse 28 is going to illustrate that beautifully. What a changed life looks like. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I want you to think about that for a minute. The thief. I don't know how many of you are involved in jail ministry or have been in prisons or jails where you visited people or know much about the whole system, but the recidivism rate among those who are thieves, whether it's strong-arm robbery or home invasion, residential burglary or petty theft, it's high. It's really hard for a thief to break out of the ways of thievery for two reasons. The first reason is this is how the individual makes his living. He does not do honest work with his own hands. He goes after that which somebody else worked hard for with their own hands. He knows only to go and to steal and to take the labors of somebody else and use them for his own advantage and his own gain. That's all he knows. That's how he makes his living. Maybe it's laziness. But the other fact is that oftentimes it's for the thrill. There is a sense in which it is addicting for thieves to continue to steal because there is an adrenaline rush over the chase, over the fact that they can get caught, over the dollar amount of the thing that they have stolen. And they become addicted to this way of life. Again, one, because it's all they know, and two, because of the high that it gives them in doing it. It's actually very difficult for people who are thieves to ever break out of that way of life. It normally sticks with them. But through the power of the cross, this is so beautiful to me, in which the gospel goes forth and the truth is taught, and there is a putting off of the old, a renewal of the mind, and a putting on of the new that facilitates a radical transformation. Now listen to this. It it facilitates a thief no longer stealing. Somebody who could not break out of a vicious cycle now no longer has the desire or the heart to do this atrocity. If that's not a miracle in and of itself, rather... This man will labor and labor doing honest work with his own hands. This is a man who's going to go out and he's going to work by the, by the sweat of his brow. He's going to plow the fields. He's going to mow the yards. He's going to dig the trenches. He's going to swing the hammer. Doing honest work. And here is the greatest change of heart that we can see manifested and the individual who would have been a thief, is that now they transition from taking to giving. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. How amazing is that? What kind of gospel power is that? The power to transform somebody who knows nothing else but a certain way of life in which you get one over on other people. To be changed by the power of the renewing spirit and the renewed mind in an individual 
to now not take anymore, but to work and work hard and give to those in need. You see, Paul understands that when an individual is truly changed, there's nothing too hard for God. There's there's an expectation of the Christian to live the Christian life because he is now able to do it. We look at verse 20 of chapter 3. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. God is able to radically transform anybody. Paul understands this, and this is what he's calling the Ephesian church to. Look, you're professing Christ. You've heard the gospel. It's taught by me. You've put off the old. You've put on the new. Now, church, this is what you need to do to facilitate the Christian life to not be a reproach, to shine as a light to those outside of the church. What a beautiful picture. Well, then Paul goes on to say, next point, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And to be 100% honest, church family, I think this is where almost all Christians are the weakest. There's some who struggle with immorality or covetousness or being angry and wrathful or holding on to anger, sometimes telling what they call white lies and trying to justify it. But not all. But I think one area in which many people struggle, even in the church, is letting corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Now, what is corrupting talk? Well, it could be a number of things. It could be swearing. It could be blasphemy. But it also could be slander, gossip, backbiting, talking behind people's backs without them there, saying things about them, speaking ill of them. You know, James talks about the human tongue. It's an unruly evil. It's set on fire by hell, and it sets on fire the entire course of nature. How great a forest is set ablaze by the tongue. Again, he says that the tongue is like a very small member. He likens it to a a rudder on a ship that guides the entire direction of the ship. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's this very real sense in which everything that proceeds from a Christian's heart will come out of the mouth. Scriptures say, does a spring pour forth both fresh water and salt water? Water. We bless our God and Father, and with the same tongue we curse those who are made in the image and likeness of God, the Scriptures say. Paul is saying, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Speak pure words, loving words, truth. Only speak that which is good for building up. Speak truth to your brother. Speak love to your brother. Speak kindness to your brother. Speak in such a way that it gives grace to those who hear. When you feel an individual has done you wrong or you don't like an individual, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Speak the truth in love. I don't think it's a mistake. Verse 30 comes next. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, is this direct correlation with verse 29 or all of the surrounding passage? I think it's all of it. Now, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? There has been debate among brethren for quite a long time as to what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit, what that looks like, and what the end result is. And there are some who believe that to grieve the Holy Spirit is to push the Holy Spirit to its breaking point in which he makes an exodus from you and you lose your salvation. Is this possible? Is it possible to grieve the Holy Spirit and lose your salvation? I think the answer is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, if to grieve the Holy Spirit is to take the Holy Spirit to a point in which he makes an exodus from the believer, well, then you could certainly lose your salvation. However, the Bible doesn't speak in any such way. I think the issue is that some people live in such a manner where they are assuming they're grieving the Holy Spirit, when the fact is they don't actually have the Holy Spirit. They're living at odds with the Word of God. They're not living in holiness. They're not living in righteousness. And therefore, they're not a hospitable place for the Holy Spirit. They've never truly tasted and seen that the Lord was good and experienced His regenerating power. And so perhaps they then fear that they've grieved the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit left them. Maybe they had morality for a season and they had a sense of affection for the things of God and it wasn't the real substance. And so when that went away and patterns of sin came up and they were living in defiance to the Word of God, they took that for grieving the Holy Spirit to the point of leaving them. Again, the Bible doesn't speak like this. The Bible assures an individual that if you have been given the Holy Spirit, you have been sealed. If the Holy Spirit can be taken from you, what is a seal? What is a promise? What is a guarantee? It's not a guarantee. It's nothing, nothing more than a possibility. An individual cannot lose the Holy Spirit. An individual cannot lose salvation. But an individual can, in fact, grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And how do we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? By disobedience. It's that simple. By not speaking the truth in love. By holding on to anger. By letting corrupting words come out of our mouths that proceed from our hearts that are supposed to be cleansed. By having bitterness and wrath and anger and slanderous ways, maliciousness. These things grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I want to think about that for a minute because I think sometimes when we read Ephesians, we might just read past that. I want you to think about the very real fact that you as a believer with the Holy Spirit can hurt God. God who gave His precious Holy Spirit to you to seal you and guarantee your inheritance, you can hurt that spirit. Not in a sense that you could do anything to sway the spirit of God or 
change its course, but you can grieve it. You can pain it with your actions. And even as just, just thinking about this, how God the Father, a loving Father, gave the Lamb, the precious Lamb on our behalf, that we might be made new and conformed into His image, to live like Him, to walk like Him, to love like Him. And when we refuse to do these things, we grieve that very Spirit, and which is our promise of salvation. I think if we thought more about that, we might have a second thought before we proceed with certain areas in our life of unrighteousness. And I think knowing this would help us to mortify or kill the passions and desires of the flesh which wage war against the Spirit, as we saw in Galatians. But what pleases the Spirit, what's pleasing to God, is when the fruit of the Spirit, as seen in Galatians 5, is yours and increasing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When these things are in you and these things are yours and these things are increasing, it's pleasing to God. It fosters obedience. It fosters sanctification. It changes an individual. It's glorifying to God. It's inviting to the Holy Spirit. It's pleasing. Well, then the Scripture says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you be kind be kind to everyone christ was kind christ was stern when he had to be stern because he wanted people to be led in the truth and not deceived but he was kind he was loving he was compassionate he was tender-hearted and this is what we're called to church family this tender-hearted is the idea of like a mother a nursing mother tender nurturing to their child we are to be tender-hearted towards one another and not just one another but even tender-hearted towards those outside then forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you now before i look at forgiving one another i want to look at as god in christ forgave you so far we've looked at moral the moral standard in which we are called to live by and obedience to god which is pleasing to the holy spirit rather than grieving now we're going to look at forgiveness because forgiveness in the sense in which we experience it is what sets christianity apart from every other religion in which god sent his own son to die on the cross for us that we can be forgiven What other religion has a God in which he sends the payment to satisfy his own wrath on behalf of sinners? And this is the kind of grace, this is the kind of forgiveness we've received in that while we were still sinners, still hostile, still vile, unrighteous, God sent his son, the Lamb of God, to die on the cross. His precious blood was shed that anybody, anybody, no no matter what their past, no matter where they are right now, who look to the cross of Christ and put their faith in him and repent of their sin will be saved, will be forgiven. No matter what. And this is the forgiveness that God calls us to. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The precious blood of Christ poured out for our forgiveness. Now we are called 
to then forgive one another. Who forgives people truly? Well, forgiven people truly forgive people. But if you do not forgive, you have not been forgiven. How do I know this? Well, the scripture says, if you do not forgive your brother, you cannot be forgiven. And you cannot both be saved and unforgiven at the same time. So therefore, it is the regenerate, it is the forgiven people who forgive, by definition. Jesus understood that this might be difficult, but he reiterated this fact numerous times that you must forgive. In the gospel accounts, it is worded different each time, slightly. But the disciples ask him, how many times are they to forgive their brother if they sin against them in a day? Jesus essentially is saying, every time your brother comes to you and repents, you must forgive regardless of what has been done, regardless of how many times he comes to you, you must forgive every time. Jesus, when teaching his disciples how to pray, said, pray then like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. This is so important. This is part of the Christian life. This is part of being holy. Only somebody who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good has the capacity to forgive because they know what they have been forgiven of. They know what they have been saved from, and we are called to forgive one another. You, you take this away, you, you can't be a, a Christian. You take away morality and obedience, you, you can't be a Christian. A Christian doesn't continue intentionally in sin. First John, those who practice righteousness are righteous. Those who practice sin are of the devil. Again, we do this imperfectly, but we strive for this. Now, the next thing I want to look at, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Church family, it is vital that we walk in love. God is love. And if anybody has Christ abiding in them, they operate in love. Love is so important. Matter of fact, without love, you're nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The scriptures even tell us that we can go and die on the stake as a martyr, but if we haven't loved, we've gained nothing in the end. Again, 1 John says, nobody can say that they love God who they have not seen truly if they can't love their brother who is seen. And anybody who claims that is a liar. They will know you are Christians by your love. God loved. We're called to love. Jesus gave the two greatest commandments, right? Love God. Love your neighbor. What does that look like to love? Well, to love others is simply following everything we had already read. To be honest with them. Instead of being angry, be kind. We don't steal from people. We don't speak corruptly about people. We speak kindly of people. We're not bitter or wrathful towards people. 
but we love. And this love isn't just limited to the church. We are to love God and we're to love our brother. Yes, Jesus even said to love your enemy. To really, to love the whole world. To love all people from all places, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done, what they look like. We are to walk in love. And this is how we're winsome. And this is how God is glorified when we walk in love. And to truly walk in love is to be heralds of the gospel. If we want to see the world changed around us, we walk in love and we share the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that's going to change anything. Now we'll go on to say that a Christian... is not somebody who walks in animosity towards somebody else because of their skin color. And a racist is not walking in love and is not Christian. Because you cannot hate somebody, you cannot hate your brother, and claim to know and claim to love God. We're called to walk in love, church. And to walk in love, especially towards the outside world right now, applicationally, isn't to raise our voice in a chant. It isn't to join a movement. It isn't to deceive ourselves into believing something about ourselves that's not true. But to love with the love of Christ and to share the gospel with those around us and to give the hope of Christ. That they might know the love of Christ. And that the world might know our love for them. This will only come when we live the true Christian life. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word is truth. Sanctify us in it. Give us strength to live holy, godly, and upright lives in this present dark generation in which so many things pull us away, so many things fight for our attention. Help us to walk in integrity, in righteousness, in truth, forgiving one another, walking in love towards one another and towards those even outside of the church, Father. Understanding this, that it is the love and integrity of the church and the gospel power, the message of the cross that the world is going to see and going to be changed by. Help us to love the world around us, not by some political movement, not by raising our voice with some anthem or chant, but by sharing the love of Christ, both through the gospel, but even in our actions with those around us. Lead us, Lord, with wisdom and understanding, and help us to live a life pleasing to you that we might not have any cause to shrink back in shame. In Christ's name, amen.